This, 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 this is Carry the One. Carry the One Radio, the science podcast from the University of California, California, San Francisco. Welcome to another day of exciting science. With you is Zara Liu from Carry the One Radio. Today we are bringing you TED-style science talks from Grassland Competition held at University of California, San Francisco in March. In a way, it is kind of the closest thing UCSF has to a football game. But unlike a football game, it is not just a competition. It is really about communicating science to the public. The contestants are challenged to present a compelling story of their thesis work with language that everyone can understand, and they have to do it in three minutes or less. It was a lot of fun to see how years of hard work on complex topics could be distilled down to a few minutes in a way that was immediately accessible to a broad audience. During this episode, you will hear talks from five Grassland finalists who agreed to come to our studio and share their stories. The topics are diverse. Ranging from cancer metabolism to worm digestion into developmental defects. All right, let me stop here and cut to the chase. The first talk is from Roman Camarda, a graduate student in the biomedical sciences program here at UCSF. His thesis work explores how we can take advantage of the cancer's unique metabolic requirements and selectively disrupt cancer metabolism. The title of his talk is "Everybody's Got to Eat: Cancer and Metabolism." What is the one thing in common between every living organism on this planet? Every single cell within your body—dare I say this is even something in common between Democrats and Republicans? That one thing is that food is absolutely essential for life. Everybody's got to eat. We know this to be true of all the normal cells in your body, but it's also true of cancer cells. And almost a hundred years ago, we discovered the fact that cancer cells actually change their eating habits, change their metabolism, compared to the normal cells they're derived from. And one of the most notable changes is that cancer cells actually increase their consumption of the carbohydrate glucose. Now, from a practical standpoint, this is a really good idea for the cancer cells to do, because glucose is readily available in the blood. So, no matter where the tumor is throughout the body, it can always get its hands on some glucose. However, in recent years, we've started to consider the fact that tumors actually reside within very specific tissues in the body, and that maybe their metabolism has adapted to take advantage of local nutrient sources within each tissue. And this should sound familiar. This is sort of like saying that many of us live in San Francisco, and we know that there are certain foods you can get your hands on no matter what neighborhood you live in. Pizza is a great example. No matter where you live in San Francisco, you can always get a slice of pizza. However, there are also distinct local cuisines available in each neighborhood, and if you go to a specific neighborhood, you probably have an increased chance of eating its local cuisine. You better believe that when I moved from the Inner Sunset to the Mission, my consumption of tacos and burritos went absolutely through the roof. We know that humans adapt their metabolism to local cuisine, but can cancer cells do this? So my project in the lab of Andre Goga at Parnassus was to study how a specific subtype of breast cancer, called triple negative breast cancer, Changes its eating habits in a specific tissue, the mammary gland, and what we discovered is that triple-negative breast cancer increases its consumption of fatty acids as a nutrient source. 
The reason why this is an exciting finding is that the mammary gland, the tissue where this tumor resides, is chock full of adipocytes, or fat storage cells. So connecting the dots, what we discovered is that a specific tumor within a specific tissue upregulated its consumption of the nutrient source that was readily available in that tissue. And we believe our discovery has important clinical implications because when we inhibit the ability of the tumors to consume fatty acids as a nutrient source, their growth is greatly diminished. And how would you feel if somebody closed down your favorite local neighborhood restaurant? I guarantee that there are many of us, myself included, that if they closed down all the taquerias in the mission, we would probably die. So in summary, what I've told you today is that everybody's got to eat. Normal cells and cancer cells. And by identifying the specific ways that cancer cells take advantage of local nutrient sources, we can develop new and profound therapies for the treatment of cancer. Hmm, I think I'm in the mood for some burritos. But is eating really the smart choice? Let's hear what neuroscience student Mihir Vora has to say. Every day, we're confronted with thousands of decisions. Should I get a burrito or a burger for lunch? Will I need a jacket when I go outside? And we not only have to make these decisions, but learn from them, so we can make better ones in the future. And amazingly, one way learning can be improved is by cutting down on something most of us love doing. Eating. Eating just a little bit less, the equivalent of two meals a day instead of three improves learning across virtually all animal species, including humans. But how can less food in our bellies make for better learning in our brains? Well, the food we eat gets broken down into chemicals, called metabolites, and we think these metabolites may be able to directly influence learning. Of course, learning is a really complicated process, so I study it just as simply as possible, using tiny, transparent roundworms. These guys have brains that are incredibly small, just 302 brain cells. But they can do a lot. They can sense their environment, make decisions, and they can even learn. In fact, they can learn just like Pavlov's dogs did. Pavlov taught them to salivate when he rang a bell, because that bell predicted he'd give them food. In the case of these worms, they can learn to associate a smell they don't normally care about with something rewarding. And once that happens, they love this smell. And if we make them go on a diet, they learn even better. Fortunately, we can do a lot of genetic manipulations with these tiny worms to try to understand why this happens. That's how I discovered a mutation that turns the worms into super learners. They learn as well as if they had been on a diet, but while eating as much as they want. That sounds like the dream, right? You get to be smart and eat a lot? So what does this mutation do? It gets rid of one nasty metabolite. Now, people have known about this metabolite for a hundred years, but wrote it off as an unimportant molecule that came from our food and just floated around the body. But I discovered that it's actually really important in connecting metabolism to learning. It can directly bind to brain cells and shut them down, making learning harder. So these mutants that I found, or the animals that eat less, don't have this nasty metabolite, which makes learning easier. And this metabolite isn't specific to worms. It exists in humans, too. In fact, other people are now finding that it's involved in brain diseases like schizophrenia and Alzheimer's disease. So I think that this one little metabolite that a lot of people thought was just a waste product 
is actually a major way metabolism connects to general brain function, explaining how what goes into our bellies controls what goes on in our brains. Eat less and learn more. Interesting. I guess I will hold off on that burrito. Hope my digestive system doesn't have a second opinion. Next, we turn to Luis Gopel from Chemical and Chemistry Biology Program, who will share some insights from her thesis work about how understanding the digestive biology of a harmless worm species can help us tackle its harmful cousins. The title of her talk is "Using Planaria Vomit to Target Parasites." I spend my days in lab making worms vomit. I give my worms small amounts of alcohol, which causes them to regurgitate their food and become temporarily paralyzed. Essentially, I get my worms drunk until they puke and then pass out. Now, this seems like a really strange thing to do to worms, but I'm actually collecting their vomit to learn more about the biology of flatworms. There are 25,000 species of flatworms, over half of which are known parasites. Including things like tapeworms and flukes. Certain flatworm parasites pose very serious threats to human health. The disease schistosomiasis, which is caused by a liver fluke, affects over 200 million people worldwide. Learning more about the biology of flatworms can help us find new and better drug targets for treatment. The flatworm that I study is not a tapeworm or a fluke. It's actually not a parasite at all. Parasites are generally very difficult to work with. They have complex life cycles that are very time and labor intensive, as well as expensive to maintain in a lab. The flatworm that I study is called Planaria. It is abundant, non-parasitic, and can even regenerate its own missing body parts. So generating large colonies for research is fast, cheap, and easy. While planaria are not parasites, they share a lot in common with the biology of other flatworms. We can study what all flatworms have in common and apply our findings from planaria back to parasites. One great place to start is digestion. All worms need to eat to survive. Digestion relies on the activity of enzymes. If we know which enzymes are the most important in digestion, we can try and block their activity. And this could lead to starvation or even death for parasites. However, there are a lot of enzymes that are involved in digestion. So how do we know which ones are the most important? Using the vomit that I collected from planaria worms, I found two types of enzymes that were promising candidates. To look at digestion in living worms, I feed my worms food that makes their gut glow in the dark. The more food they digest, the more their gut glows. If I use drugs that block just these two types of enzymes, the glowing in the gut decreases so much that it's almost undetectable. So even though there are many types of enzymes involved in digestion, blocking just two types seems sufficient to halt digestion entirely in planaria. Because many other types of flatworms use the same enzymes in their digestion, we can apply our findings from planaria back to other flatworms, including important parasites. Understanding planaria enzymes can help us target and eliminate parasites that harm humans. So while I may spend my days in lab making worms vomit, at least my worms are getting drunk for a good reason.
using puking worms to fight parasites. That is really exciting. We can learn so much with these tiny worms. Well, why don't we step up the evolutionary ladder a little bit to check in with some vertebrates too? Next, I will share a story from my own thesis work about how cells in a developing zebrafish embryo can find their way home. Life starts as a single fertilized egg and develops into trillions of cells that make up a human body. This is roughly 500 times the world's population. With all the cell divisions and movements, it is unbelievable that we turn out to be okay. Development unfolds in a very specific manner to ensure that all cells end up in the right place at the right time. One of the most critical steps is the division of labor when an embryo divides into three germ layers, just like a boiled egg with the shell, egg white, and the yolk. The embryo is like a mini society. It is crucial that different types of cells reside in different layers so each can do its job properly. The cells that make up the gut, for example, needs to be in the innermost layer. So how are the three layers of an embryo precisely separated without an error? Believe it or not, it is not as intuitive as you might think. When the three different types of cells are establishing their fates, they receive a mixture of signals. They move around, pushing and shoving. Not as static as the boiled egg, but more like people, packed like sardines pouring out of AT&T Park after a Giants game. So it is not surprising at all that a couple of cells might get lost and go to the wrong location. But during development, one single mistake could be fatal. So the question then becomes, what will happen to these lost cells? Do they get back? How? I am focusing on the cells that make up the gut. I want to understand how these cells, if getting lost, sort themselves into the innermost layer of an embryo. I am using zebrafish embryo as a model because of its transparency. In lab, I can force cells fated to be the gut at wrong locations of an embryo and watch these lost cells moving in a live embryo in real time. Normally, during development, cells that make up the gut need to fold inside to make the inner layer. These lost cells, as it turns out, in order to catch up with the normal ones, take a shortcut by squeezing through layers of cells and directly get into the inner layer. So how do the lost cells realize that they're at a wrong location to begin with? What are the signals that direct them home? These are my next questions. Identify the error and correct it. The amazing ability of error correction of an embryo guarantees that development is precise and robust, therefore the advent of a new life. It is pretty amazing that embryos can go from a single cell to far more complex, precisely tuned multicellular organisms. But this only works if each step of development goes exactly right. 
Sean Abrams from the Oral and Craniofacial Sciences program found a way to treat developmental defects associated with cleft lip and cleft palate. In his talk, The New Face of Celia, we will hear how he brings hope for a far better life with his thesis work. I'd like you to think about your face for a moment. You look at it every morning when you brush your teeth, and it's a huge part of your self-identity, as well as how we recognize and interact with each other. Birth defects that affect development of the face are called craniofacial defects. An example is cleft lip and cleft palate. Now these make up a third of all birth defects, so they're extremely common. And they can be particularly devastating because they can impair a child's ability to speak, to eat, and even smile. Currently, the only way to fix these defects is surgery. I don't just mean one surgery. Children affected typically have to undergo multiple invasive surgeries throughout their early childhood development to fix the defects. So there's a tremendous economic as well as psychological burden, not only on the affected child, but also their family. But what if we could intervene before these defects have happened and prevent their development? Imagine the impact that could have. That's the goal of my research. So I study cilia, and these are tiny hair-like organelles that you've probably learned about in your high school biology class in the context of tiny microorganisms that use them to move around. But it turns out these cilia are actually very important for human development. There are cilia in your lung that help move mucus and pathogens out of your lung to prevent infection. And there are another type of cilia present on almost every cell type in your body. But these cilia don't move. They're immotile, and they act as the cell's antenna. They take in information from outside of the cell, and they transmit that information to instruct cellular decisions. These immotile cilia are critical for development of your face. If you have too little signaling through these cilia, effectively a broken cellular antenna, this can cause cleft lip and palate, as well as a dramatic narrowing of the face. My thesis sets out to figure out why and how, and I found three major things. First, I figured out when these defects first happen. It turns out they happen very early on during development of the embryo before any structure resembling a head or a face is formed. Two, I found that this early defect results in massive cell death in the cells and tissues that ultimately form your face. And three, most importantly, I figured out a way to prevent these defects from happening. How did I do it? I targeted a receptor that goes to the cilia and keeps signaling levels down. By removing one copy of the gene that codes for this receptor, I was able to prevent massive cell death, prevent cleft lip and palate, and restore normal facial development. These exciting results give us new insights into how cells use their antenna to communicate and bring us one giant step forward in the hopes of translating this from the mouse to the human. And I would love to see that day coming in the near future. Thank you, Sean. And thanks to all the finalists for sharing your exciting research. Which brings us to the end of this episode. See you next time. I'm Zaira Liu from Carry the One Radio. This episode was produced by myself, Zaira Liu, with editing help from Sam McConnell Esselman. 
Special thanks to the UCSF Grassland finalists who agreed to share their stories with us. Links and more information about the music used in this episode are on our website. Our science producers today are Thomas Waronowitz and Tom and Julie Jones, who are supporting us through our crowdfunding platform at Patreon.com. We will have links on our website and more science episodes at CarryTheOneRadio.com. You will also find us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Stay curious.